the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Today we'll talk with Mark Moore. He's the author of Core 52, a 15 minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. It's a really interesting approach to having an overview of the scriptures. We'll also talk in the five o'clock hour with Stephen Kendrick. He, along with his brother Alex, are the um, director and producers of Overcomer. And there's a suite of resources that go along with the film. It's opening in theaters on August the 23rd. We'll talk more about this uh, highly anticipated sixth film from the Kendrick brothers. And by the way, there's a third brother as well. I believe his name is Shannon. We'll talk with uh, him about that later in the five o'clock hour. And as the tradition continues... The Portland Singing Christmas Tree will be returning to the Keller Auditorium on the 22nd of November, and we'll be giving away a four-pack of uh, tickets to a caller in this first hour of today's program. Portland Singing Christmas Tree features 26 new songs, Miss America 2002 Katie Harmon, Timothy Greenidge, a 300-voice choir, Cinematic Nativity, the Jefferson Dancers, I might sing a song or two, and we'll be giving away four-pack of tickets. I also want to um, encourage you to make note that this is the last week to save $5 on advanced purchase tickets, so you might want to check that out as well. First, taking a look at some of the day's headlines, President Trump is planning a visit to El Paso, Texas. That's tomorrow, the city's mayor says. Some Democrats uh, continue to blame the president for the mass shooting there and have urged him to stay away. News of his planned appearance teed up a potentially bitter national political moment just four days after suspected gunman, 21-year-old Anonymous, allegedly opened fire at a Walmart and killed 22 people while injuring more than two dozen others. El Paso, Texas Mayor D. Margo said he is already getting the emails and phone calls from individuals with lots of time on their hands, but that his focus remains on his community, not politics. Several Democrats have accused the president of planting the seeds of hate with racist anti-immigration rhetoric that led to two mass shootings that left 31 dead in El Paso, despite the fact that one of the two was a leftist uh, by his own admission. The El Paso, the right, Ohio, the left. Other critics accuse Democrats of politicizing two tragedies by blaming the president. The White House has not confirmed his schedule or whether he will visit Dayton, Ohio, where the gunman killed nine people over the weekend. But the Federal Aviation Administration has advised pilots of a presidential visit Wednesday to both El Paso and Dayton. Uh, the president, for his part on Monday, called for reforms at the intersection of mental health and gun laws, including the so-called red flag laws to take guns from those deemed a public risk. In unequivocal terms, he also condemned white supremacy, responding to reports that the shooter in El Paso wrote a racist manifesto ahead of the violence. The manifesto specifically said that Trump rhetoric was not to blame for the shooting and said the shooter's views predate Trump's presidential campaign. 
And the Treasury Department on Monday officially declared China a currency manipulator. While the yuan uh, fell to uh, a more than 10-year low against the U.S. dollar, Secretary Steven Mnuchin, with the support of President Trump, determined that China is, in fact, unfairly influencing its currency, allegations that had been made by the president multiple times throughout the day. The yuan movement on Monday, combined with um, the administration's announcement that it plans to impose 10 percent tariffs on the remaining $300 billion worth of Chinese goods uh, coming into the United States next month sent markets spiraling, leading to their worst day in 2019. U.S. stocks went into free fall on Monday with the Dow Jones Industrial Average down 900 points at its low before curbing some of those losses, ending the session at 767 points lower. Wall Street uh, will look to recover. But the rocky road may lie ahead. The Huan uh, shows signs of stabilizing early uh, today, earlier today, I should say, as futures pointed to a modestly lower open for American equities with E-many S&P 500 futures down 0.3 percent. And a top Chinese military official today said Beijing would not stand idly by if the U.S. goes forward with deploying intermediate range missiles in the Indo-Pacific region, raising new fears of an arms race. Last weekend, Mark Esper, the U.S. Defense Secretary, said that he would like to place these missiles in Asia while in Sydney. Australia's defense minister has said that country will not be a base for the missiles. It was not clear when those missiles would be put in place. But one senior official said from the U.S. rather told Reuters that it would be years away. Esper made the comments after the U.S. withdrew from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Arms Control Treaty with Russia last Friday. For voters in California, along with the conservative transparency group Judicial Watch, announced yesterday that they have filed a federal lawsuit against the left-wing state of California, alleging its new law aimed at strong-arming President Trump into releasing his income tax returns is patently unconstitutional. Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom signed the law known as the Presidential Tax Transparency and Accountability Act last week. Its provisions would require Donald Trump and other presidential primary candidates to file their tax returns for the most recent five years to the California Secretary of State by November 26th or be excluded from the March 3rd, 2020 presidential primary ballot. The law does not apply to the general election, so Trump would still appear on the November 2020 California presidential ballot, ballot rather, if he secured the National Republican Party nomination. And a New York Times uh, headline about uh, President Trump's remarks on the recent mass shooting in El Paso and Dayton drew condemnation online, including some Democratic presidential candidates, and was subsequently changed online late Monday. The newspaper summarized Trump's comments in which he denounced hate and white supremacy with the headline, Trump urges unity versus racism, on the front page of its first edition. A photograph of Tuesday's first edition was tweeted out to by journalist Nate Silver on Monday night and was quickly slammed by critics who accused the gray lady of inaccurately representing Trump's comments. Well, in the wake of shootings, Lindsey Graham um, took the lead on red flag laws, uh, saying that many of these shootings involved individuals who showed signs of violent behavior that are either ignored or not followed up on. State uh, red flag laws will provide the tools for law enforcement to do something about many of these situations before it's too late. Partnering with um, uh, Senator Graham is Senator Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat out of Connecticut. Maine Governor uh, Janet Mills signed a red flag law in June that some are looking at as the national conversation starter on federal legislation.
And California, well, I've mentioned that one already. A look at the underlying causes behind the recent acts of evil. R.R. Reno at First Looks, First Things rather, says this. A fish rots from the head down. The social disillusion of our nation is a direct consequence of the mentalities, policies and actions of our ruling class. It's a condemn, it is condemning that tech moguls take extreme measures to insulate their own children from the devices and social media platforms they market so vigorously to the rest of us. It's condemning that our ruling class makes a fortune on violent video games, does nothing to limit pornography, and presses for drug legalization amid an epidemic of overdose death. Behind these obvious betrayals of the public good, powerful trends erode the foundation of a healthy social order. The therapeutic mentality is hostile to moral discipline. The agenda of inclusion almost always promotes soft relativism. Transgressive chic mocks old-fashioned standards. All of these and more are strongly uh, favored by the people who have been running the media, schools, and culture institutions for the last two generations. And how does the fall look for impeachment? Fred, uh, rather, Ed Morrissey writes, House Judiciary Chairman Gerald Nadler told MSNBC's Morning Joe panel that impeachment is still very much on the table by late in fall. Nadler promises House Democrats will have enough information to vote yes or no for starting a full impeachment inquiry. If we decide to report articles of impeachment, we could get to that uh, in late fall in the latter part of the year, Nadler told MSNBC. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. On this day in history, 1991, the World Wide Web makes its public debut as a means of accessing web pages over the Internet. On this day in 1926, Gertrude Edderl becomes the first woman to swim the English Channel, arriving in Kingstown, England, from France, 14 and a half hours. On this day in 1945, during World War II, the U.S. B-29 Superfortress Enola Gay drops an atomic bomb codenamed Little Boy on Hiroshima, Japan, resulting in an estimated 140,000 deaths. And on this day in 1965, President Lyndon Johnson signs the Voting Rights Act. On this day in 2009... Sonia Sotomayor is confirmed as the first Hispanic Supreme Court justice by a Senate vote of 68 to 31. Well, the United States took the rare step on Monday of formally labeling China a currency manipulator. Trade relations between the two countries continues to spiral downward after President Trump's decision last week to impose additional tariffs on Chinese goods. In recent days, the Treasury Department said in a statement that followed the People's Bank of China's decision to let its currency Uh, fall to the lowest level in more than a decade. While maintaining substantial foreign exchange reserves, despite active use of such tools in the past, uh, the uh, Treasury Department said China has taken the concrete steps to devalue its currency. U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin made the determination, acting under the auspices of President Trump, the department said. Mnuchin uh, will now engage with the International Monetary Fund to eliminate the unfair competitive advantage created by China's latest actions, it added. Well, previous administrations have been loath to label China a currency manipulator, even though they have manipulated currency, and everyone knows it, arguing it was better to work with other countries to put diplomatic pressure on Beijing. The last time Treasury designated any country as a currency manipulator was in the early 1990s when China then 
again, was named. Well, during the 2016 presidential campaign, Trump promised to formally label China as a currency manipulator on his first day in office. But he declined to do that, reflecting the prevailing view at the time that Beijing was not devaluing its currency for an unfair trade advantage. Since then, the Treasury Department has kept China on a currency watch list in five semi-annual reports issued under the Trump administration, but had not formally labeled it a currency manipulator. The next report is due on the 15th of October, but Mnuchin acted ahead of that schedule. The trade tensions has already driven stocks lower on Monday before the Treasury's uh, designation. Both the Dow Jones Industrial Average and broader S&P 500 fell around 3%, extending losses from last week. Soybean prices were also under pressure at the Chicago Board of Trade. So this is definitely having an impact. The penalties associated with the U.S. move included asking the IMF to increase surveillance of China's currency practices. The United States could also deny Chinese companies access to financing from the overseas private investment corporation and provide them from or rather prohibit them from bidding on U.S. government procurement contracts. But those do not kick until after a year under the authorizing statute. However, the Commerce Department has previously proposed treating undervalued currency as an illegal trade subsidy. If that becomes final, Treasury's designation could help open the floodgates to a number of trade remedies, cases um, seeking countervailing duties on Chinese goods. Well, Treasury action is more symbolic than anything at this point and aimed at Trump's hardcore political base that he will need to shore up now that the economy is uh, broadly decelerating in part due to the trade conflict. So says the chief economist at RSM. Moreover, it marks the start of a process that may end in the Trump administration attempting to devalue the dollar. That possibly was also on the minds of other economists, given Trump's concern that the strength of the dollar hurts the United States and international trade by making its exports more expensive. We'll continue to follow that story as it develops. Frustrated by increasingly fruitless negotiations, um, the the president decided on Thursday that the United States will impose a 10 percent tariff on an additional $300 billion worth of Chinese imports next month, a significant escalation in a trade war that dragged on for more than a year. The new tariff would come on top of the 25% levy that the president has already imposed on $250 billion worth of Chinese imports, resulting in the United States taxing nearly everything China sends to the United States, from iPhones to New Balance sneakers to children's books. The president had agreed um, in June not to impose more tariffs after meeting with the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, and agreeing to restart trade talks. But Mr. Trump said he was moving ahead with the levies as of September 1st as punishment for China's failure to live up to its commitments, including buying more American agricultural products and stemming the flow of fentanyl into the United States. Until such time as there is a deal, we'll be taxing them, the president told reporters at the White House on the lawn. His move will most likely be met with reciprocal punishment by the Chinese. More on that in a moment. On the sidelines of the meeting in Southwest Asia, officials in Bangkok on Friday, Wang Yi, China's foreign minister, told reporters that adding tariffs is definitely not the correct way to resolve economic and trade frictions. New tariffs would increase the likelihood that the world's two largest economies will be locked in a protracted trade dispute for months, if not years. And while the countries continue to negotiate, the path to a deal has only narrowed as Beijing and Washington harden their positions and as political dynamics, including the 2020 election, something President Xi has, uh, hasn't uh, 
got uh, in his future, further complicates the chances for a compromise. We thought we had a deal with China three months ago, but sadly, China decided to renegotiate the deal prior to signing, the president said on Twitter. More recently, China agreed to buy agricultural products from the U.S. in large quantities, but did not do so. The president said that China also did not fulfill its commitment to stop the sale of fentanyl into the United States. As he departed the White House for a rally in Iowa at that uh, press briefing, the president accused Mr. Xi of trying to slow walk negotiations ahead of the 2020 elections in the hopes that a Democrat would win the White House and their uh, violations would become acceptable again. Well, the Chinese also dealt a body blow to struggling U.S. Uh, farmers in the Farm Belt, as it's called. The, uh, the Farm Belt braced for deeper pain from the escalating trade battle between the world's two biggest economies, saying that uh, China saying that it would suspend all imports of U.S. agricultural goods. China moves, uh, uh, China's move rather will affect farmers raising fuzzy green soybean pods in Illinois, milking cows in California, feeding hogs in North Carolina, all of whom have seen businesses uh, suffer as a result of tariffs that Chinese officials implemented last year. China's suspension of U.S. farm purchases is a body blow to U.S. farmers and ranchers. A Georgia farmer and head of the American Farm Bureau Federation says, we urge negotiators to redouble their efforts to arrive at an agreement and quickly, he said. Feeding China's growing appetite has meant big business for the U.S. farm economy. China was one of the biggest export destinations for U.S. agricultural commodities from 2009 to 2017 alongside Canada and Mexico, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. In 2017, Chinese buyers imported some $19.5 billion in farm goods. Goods. That dropped to $9.1 billion last year as China tariffs on U.S. soybeans, pork, milk, and other products made them more expensive for importers there, prompting some to seek alternatives and scale back imports from the U.S. Over the first six months of this year, China's agricultural imports from the United States were down 20% from the same time last year. So at a high of $19.5 billion in farm goods to $9.1 billion last year and a 20% uh, percent uh, downturn this year for the same period uh, as last year. So this is definitely having a, a, a serious and significant impact on U.S. farmers. 30 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we return, we're going to talk with Mark Moore. The book is titled Core 52, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. We'll give him a chance to explain when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Did you know that 80% of the people in church want to know the Bible better? Surprisingly, the desire may be even stronger in those outside the church. A recent survey in Phoenix uh, indicated that 60% of those who said they were interested in the Bible weren't connected with any church at all. Well, what are the reasons behind that? My next guest points out we're busy and we don't know where to start. Well, for those who want a fast pass to Bible literacy, Pastor Mark Moore, he developed Core 52, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. 
He's a former New Testament professor at Ozark Christian College and now teaching pastor at a mega church called Christ Church of the Valley in Phoenix, Arizona. And he takes the reader through the 52 most powerful passages in the Bible. Your personal trainer for spiritual growth. That's what he is. Well, Mark Moore is a teaching pastor at Christ Church in the Valley in Phoenix, Arizona. He leverages two decades in a college classroom teaching New Testament. Um, along with uh, pastoring, and his goal is to make Scripture accessible and relevant to people trying to make sense of Christianity. His two worlds of academic Bible study and practical Christian living come together in this powerful new tool called Core 52, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you. It's great to be here with you, Jody. Well, this is really a fascinating approach to understanding the Bible. And as I mentioned at the uh, start of my introduction, um, surveys indicate that people are interested in knowing more about the Bible, but uh, maybe don't have the time or take the time, or they don't really know where to start. How does Core 52 address those who are interested, um, but haven't uh, followed through with that interest? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think part of the problem that we've experienced uh, heretofore is that we, we've approached the issue backwards. And, and like, I, I'm at fault for it as a pastor. We've tried to convince people to be interested in the Bible, and they're already interested. We haven't asked the question, what's keeping them away from the Bible, that they're already interested. And as you mentioned earlier, it's a big book, and it's a bold, old book. So if, if somebody just approaches the Bible and says, okay, where do I start? They're probably going to start in Genesis, which is awesome. That's great. But if you're doing like a near through the Bible reading plan, <laughs> it's going to be about February where they get to Leviticus and go, I'm out because I'm stuck. We want to have people get unstuck by simply showing them the pivot passages that have the highest ROI for their spiritual growth. So this is sort of a Bible survey that gives them the, the highlights, if you will, that not only gives them a, a better understanding of the, the flow of the Scripture, its history, the major points, and so on, but perhaps um, builds their appetite for going deeper. Well, absolutely. And I would liken it to the, the 80-20 principle that almost every athlete, almost every CEO uses. 80% of the benefit you get in anything, whether it's a, a, a game that you're playing or a business that you're building, 80% of the benefit is in 20% of the effort. I just want to point out the 20% because, like you said, if someone is successful day by day, they're going to keep going because every day they're, uh, they're approaching an idea that has practical applications. So, okay, my marriage just got better. I'm going to read tomorrow. I have a little better insight into how to raise my kids, or I get a promotion at work because I'm living out a principle that Christ would give in scriptures. All of that is incredibly motivating to people. Now, this is a really interesting approach because it does make the scriptures more approachable. There are cultural differences. There is a difference in uh, the time that this took place. This is an ancient document. It may be difficult for a contemporary reader to fully understand. Let's talk about the the approach that you have developed. There's a three-pronged strategy, and then let's walk through how each of these um, uh, seven days a week for 52 weeks uh, pans out. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, to say that you can get the whole Bible in 52 verses is pretty audacious. I get it. But I spent two decades in a college classroom digging deep, and now I've spent nearly a decade in a, one of those giga churches where people are just coming in with needs. 
I'd let those two worlds crash together to say, okay, if I only get 15 minutes a day from you, what am I going to give to you? So step number one, just identify the 52 verses, which done, check that off. The second thing is, as you, as you mentioned, we just need a little coaching. And when I travel abroad, I want to have a guide to just warn me, okay, don't eat there. Uh, here's, here's how you, you know, exchange money or get to the bathroom, whatever you need. With minimal coaching provided in the book, Core 52, most people are pretty independent learners in Scripture. So then the third uh, aspect is it's going gonna, it's gonna to take you one, like eight, eight pages for each essay. That's day one. I give you four other days to flex other muscles like meditation and Scripture memorization and reading Bible stories and then applying it to your life. So even though you're reading only one essay a week, you actually get four other days of spiritual exercises to build your core. Now explain for listeners who don't have a copy of Core 52 in their hands, as I do, what the essay is and how that flows for the remaining four days. Yeah, thank you for for asking that question. Each essay takes the core verse. So for example, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Like we can read that verse, but if you understand a little bit of the insight into how important that verse is, when you read in Leviticus and Psalms and Matthew all the way through the end in Revelation, you will be an independent learner because you understand the core verse of creation. Every time creation is brought up, you go, oh, okay, I, I see the context and the background of it. How important is um, scripture memorization to having a, an understanding of what the Bible ultimately teaches? Oh, boy. You know, very few people actually memorize scripture. Mm-hmm. I have been studying scripture for decades. I just learned something, Georgine, that blew my mind. When Paul describes uh, the, the armament of a Christian, the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, etc., when it talks about the, the shield or, or the sword of the Spirit, it says, which is the word of God. The particular Greek word used there is not a written word, but actually spoken word. And when we know the Bible, but don't know how, are unable to speak it, now, I'm not saying you have to get every word exactly right, but it, there's power in being able to speak the truths of Scripture. And it is that power that is your only offensive weapon uh, against your spiritual enemy. Now, I described um, Core 52 as uh, something similar to a Bible survey. Can you make a distinction between um, what you provide here in Core 52 and a survey of the Bible in which you look at the poetic books and you look at the historical books and you uh, explain how the Bible is structured? This is not quite that. It's, it's different in terms of its approach. That's right. I don't think it's inaccurate to say it's a survey in that Core 52 is going to give you 52 concepts that are the core of the Bible. But a Bible survey treats all of the Bible equally. In other words, it's, it's going to spread the love between the poetic books, prophetic books. I don't. I'm looking practically and pastorally. I know after now 35 years of preaching, I know what verses take people further faster, and I'm going to land on those specifically. So for me, it's not about being fair with each genre of scripture. It's about being helpful to someone who's going, I just, I just need to get my life together. 
what ultimately is the goal for the reader of Core 52? Um, as I mentioned earlier, there are people who are churched and there are those who are unchurched who have expressed an interest in Scripture, but haven't quite made the commitment to dive in. What ultimately is the goal of 452 for each of those groups? I, I would say it's actually almost identical for both groups. I want you to move from curiosity to confidence curiosity about the Bible to confidence in living the principles of Scripture. And as I've observed that we often try to talk people into church, I don't think we need to do that. I think we need to help them live their lives in a way that's healthy and productive. So the short answer to your question is, is I want people to have a better life. I want them to get drunk less, sleep around less, cheat less, lie less, have more confidence have more compassion, have more social justice. And the principles of Scripture lead people in those directions. And as they lead in the direction of God, they're going to fall in love with God. I don't have to broker that deal. Mm. We're talking about the book uh, Core 52. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. But uh, the book provides 52 of the most powerful passages in the Bible, and it's a faithful representation of what the Bible's full message is. And for those who want to whet their appetite and gain an understanding of what does the Bible teach, this is a way uh, to do that that's manageable for people who say, look, I'm too busy and I don't know where to start. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. Again, my guest is Pastor Mark Moore, Core 52. A 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Pastor Mark Moore. He's the author of Core 52, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. For those who... Uh, want to read the Bible, don't quite know where to start, don't have a lot of time, this is a great way to familiarize yourself with the major themes. Now, some might be tempted to imagine that um, this is just an academic exercise, uh, but you write in your introduction that with the help of the Holy Spirit, you'll make the most of your strategic investment in Scripture to exponentially increase your impact uh, on society. What role do you see the Holy Spirit playing as uh, your readers um, spend time, 15 minutes a day at minimum, spend time studying God's Word one verse at a time, covering the span of Scripture. Well, that, thank you. That actually uh, ties back into the previous part of our conversation. Obviously, we talk a lot about the Holy Spirit inspiring Scripture. I see the Holy Spirit just as involved when people read and interpret Scripture, because Jesus said when, when, the, when the Spirit comes, when the Comforter comes, He's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. One of the ways of keeping the Holy Spirit from convicting you is to not know what God has said to you. So the more familiar we are with the template of Scripture and the the big ideas of Scripture, the more the Holy Spirit has ammunition to engage with us where we live, work, and play. So in in a conversation with your wife or maybe a, a project you're working on at work, when you when you marinate in the Word of God, it is in those moments that the Holy Spirit can more readily and quickly communicate to you what God has already said. The Old Testament can be quite a challenge to the contemporary reader. Were there um, elements in the book, were there specific scriptures uh, that you found more difficult to expound upon in this sort of a structure than others in helping your readers understand what the intent of scripture is? 
Well, actually, not really, to be honest with you. And the reason is I'm landing on just 52 verses that have your highest ROI and greatest impact. So what I noticed was I tended to focus more on the New Testament than the Old. And where I did focus on the Old Testament, which and obviously the New Testament is still within the Jewish context. When I did focus on the Old Testament, it, it typically surrounded and circled the person of Jesus. So, for example, you have to talk about Abraham. Well, he's the promise, the promised seed of Abraham is Jesus. Talk about Moses. Well, Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses. David, and on it goes. So if a person is familiar with Jesus, they're going to read the Old Testament mm -hmm. better and more informed because it points to the macro story of God's salvation in him. Now, for those who spend 52 weeks, 15 minutes a day, um, going through this book, Core 52, what do you see as the next step? What do you hope happens after they have become familiar with these core scriptures that cover the essential themes of scripture? Yes, I would, I would suspect that there's going to be a lot of people that are more able to listen attentively to what their pastor is saying. That, that would be a good starting place. Because as I listen, you know, I obviously pre preach uh, about 14 times a year here at our church. Our senior pastor preaches the bulk of the others. As I listen to him, I get a more nuanced understanding of the study he's put into it than someone who is less familiar with the Bible. But it doesn't make me more spiritual or more intelligent. It actually makes me more accountable and responsible. That, that's one. Another thing that I see happening is once someone gets the core, like you've, you, you've, you've nailed some spikes into 52 places of the Bible, you're going to start absorbing a great deal more on your own because you're going you're gonna to see those passages that were formerly quite confusing Will, will be much less confusing once you see the larger template of Scripture. Yeah. And I think one of the major benefits is removing the barriers to Bible engagement. As we mentioned earlier, people have reasons why uh, their interest doesn't match their practice, and this is a way to kind of bridge that gap. My understanding is you yeah. originally developed Core 52 as a tool to train new staff members of the church that you are a part of. How did that um, uh, help them to better engage with Scripture in, in uh, Bible study training? Oh, man, it, it not only was it a good benefit for their own spiritual growth, but when they started engaging members, so to put this in perspective, uh, our church now has nine campuses across the Valley of Phoenix. Uh, we had been averaging over the year about 35,000 people on a weekend. And so, as you can imagine, there's this flood of people coming in with all kinds of real-life issues. Everything you want to name is coming in. A staff member who is great at loving people but may not have the biblical background, they're just going to miss a lot of opportunities to help people with the wisdom and the Word of God. So what I've seen is that our associate pastors, our campus pastors, our, our neighborhood group leaders are just way better at pointing people more quickly to the real solutions to the problems that they're facing. Let's just take the next few minutes, and I'd like to invite you to walk us through one of these chapters that would take your reader 15 minutes to kind of give us a, a sense of how the each chapter is outlined and how each verse is highlighted and the exercise that you invite your leaders, your readers rather, uh, to walk through. Okay, so uh, let's, let's begin at the beginning. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
most of us look at that, Georgine, and go, okay, I get it. God made the world. It's not that simple, actually, because the creation account in Genesis is different than virtually every other creation account in the ancient world. In that, other creation accounts say that matter is eternal and the gods arose out of matter. And that matters because like Darwinian evolution, those ancient narratives said that matter is eternal and the gods are temporary or arise temporarily. What the, what the Jewish scriptures say is that God is eternal and matter comes out of God. So that impacts us in the way we deal with the environment. That impacts us in the way we deal with sexuality, in the way we do uh, deal with finances and family, because if matter is eternal, that's what we point ourselves to and, and, and emphasize. The Christians came along in the understanding of Genesis 1-1 and said, now, wait a minute, it's not just God the Father, but now you have God the Holy Spirit and Jesus, God's Son, involved in this creation account. So, for example, a lot of Christians don't pay attention to Jesus' role in creation. But there he is in Genesis 1-3. God spoke. He is the Logos that created the world. How, so how does that, why does that matter? Because as I'm staring out my window right now across the desert landscape of, of Arizona, a lot of people look at this world and say, it just, it doesn't matter because it's kindling for Armageddon. No Christian can actually say that if they understand the full impact of the Trinity in the first few verses of Genesis. So what are we going to do about that? Day one, read the essay. And there's obviously a lot more in the eight pages than I can unpack here in 30 seconds. Day two, let's just memorize the verse and let it sink in. Day three, let's, let's read uh, the Bible story of creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Day four, let's meditate on not one verse, but three verses, like Colossians 1.15, that Jesus is the creator. Genesis 1.1, Jesus, the Logos, all things were created through him. Now, day four, or day five, as we apply this, what is one thing that you could do today that would improve the physical creation of the place that you live? To be a caretaker of God's garden. Because of those five days, this is ripe for small group discussions. Mm -hmm. Because now I'm not only thinking myself what to do about it, but I've got a community around me and we think, okay, what can we do to improve our relationship with the environment and the people who are God's children in that environment. I also love that you have a segment, it's called Key Points, in which you highlight the major points that you want to make sure aren't missed. Uh, you also have an overachiever challenge where they are a challenge to memorize a second verse. And then the bonus read where you provide resources uh, that may help them um, pursue an understanding uh, more fully uh, based on the principles in this particular scripture. So it's not just a static read and uh, you walk away, but you challenge them to internalize and respond to what the scriptures are saying. Yeah, and Georgine, if your listeners are interested in engaging, they can go to core52.org, see the whole template. There's resources there if churches wanted to do this as a discipleship for a year, or individual Bible studies want to engage in it together. There's lots of videos, and all, all of it is just you know my gift to you. I just want people to get engaged in God's Word, because it makes them better at life. 
Absolutely. Once again, the book is titled Core 52, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. And it's more than just simply reading a scripture. There's so much more to it, as you've you've heard. Thank you so much for making this available to the rest of us. I know your church has benefited, but I think this is going to be a great resource for the body of Christ at large. Thank you. At God's will. Thank you. Again, uh, Mark Moore is a pastor and author of Core 52, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the year. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, seven minutes after five o'clock. James Blind is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Stephen Kendrick. He's the producer of the highly anticipated sixth film from the Kendrick brothers, Alex and Stephen, uh, Overcomer and a suite of resources that go along with that. They're going, the movie's going to be in theaters on the 23rd of August. You can check out more at overcomermovie.com. We'll be talking with him a bit later in the program. Also this hour, we're going to give away a four-pack of tickets to the Singing Christmas Tree, uh, coming once again to the Keller Auditorium. We're going to be giving them away for the uh, performance that is sponsored by KPDQ. We'll tell you more about that a bit later this hour, so stick around. Well, police in Dayton said that they're still seeking a motive for Connor Betts, whose name I won't repeat, uh, the shooting spree that killed nine people, including the shooter's sister. But whatever turns up, we hope no one blames Elizabeth Warren. We say that because the news site Heavy.com, which gained access to the Twitter account of the shooter before it was taken down, reports that his politics appear to have been left of center. The shooter recently tweeted that he would happily vote for Senator Warren. His Twitter profile also read, he, him, anime, fan, metalhead, leftist, I'm going to hell and I'm not coming back, end quote. In December last, he wrote, this is America, guns on every corner, guns in every house, no freedom but to kill. A month before that, he wrote, vote blue for God's sake, end quote. Well, the Dayton shooters uh, ravings are notable only because the media and uh, politicians have drawn a straight line between the El Paso shooters anti-immigrant manifesto and Donald Trump and the Republican Party. Well, after so many recent mass shootings, it's disheartening to see how quickly the issue of those two highly disturbed shooters is overwhelmed by the urge to assign political causation. Well, on Monday, the Associated Press and Dayton Daily News reported accounts from uh, this shooter's former classmates who described his violent family fantasies in high school. The answer to how he or the El Paso shooter found their way from fantasy to murder won't be found in pointless spitting matches between the left and the right over whose politics bears the blame. And if we had time to go through the laundry list of those who in 2019 were involved in mass shootings, it would be much longer than most people would suppose. Well, Betts appears to have been uh, on the other side of the ledger. He wrote approvingly of socialism, Democrat presidential candidate Warren, Massachusetts and uh, from Massachusetts, uh, liberal Democrat House members Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley. But do we blame them? No. He also described himself as an atheist, praised Satan, though perhaps jokingly. And his Twitter profile bio included leftists and I'm going to hell and I'm not coming back. Uh, the problem is much larger than political influences and uh, we'll touch on that a bit later in the program. Meanwhile, in El Paso, Texas, officials held a press conference on the latest details of the mass shooting. But uh, in Texas, where that shooting took place this past weekend, leaving 22 dead, another potential um, tragedy was thwarted last month when a woman convinced her grandson to visit a hospital for treatment instead of opening fire at a hotel that he had planned. 
William Patrick Williams, 19, of Lubbock, Texas, was arrested by federal authorities on Thursday after a short hospitalization. This was a tragedy averted. Neely Cox, a U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Texas, said in a statement, I want to praise the defendant's grandmother who saved lives by interrupting this plot. Now, it doesn't always happen quite that uh, handily where a plot is specifically admitted to and an individual with influence is able to prevent it from moving forward. But Williams told his grandmother he purchased an AK-47 rifle and planned to shoot up a local hotel and commit suicide by cop. Federal prosecutors said last week the woman convinced him to let her bring him to a hospital instead. She gave authorities consent to search a room that Williams rented at the hotel. Officers found the rifle he said he'd purchased, 17 magazines loaded with ammunition, several knives, a black trench coat, tactical pants, a T-shirt that read, let them come, and black gloves with the fingers cut out. Well, a check of the uh, form used to purchase the weapons found Williams listed false information, including his address. He was arrested for allegedly making false statements to a firearms dealer. He faces up to five years in prison. Well, the arrest came mere days before another gunman walked into El Paso's Walmart on Saturday and open fire. So far, the shooting's uh, death is tw- toll is at 22, uh, with many more injured. A few hours later, another gunman killed nine people in a separate spree in Dayton, Ohio. R.R. Reno, uh, writing, uh, who is the, uh, uh, the editor for First Things, uh, wrote this about these events. Um, the rot in our ruling class. He writes, 20 dead in El Paso, nine more in Ohio. Both shootings are malicious acts to be condemned, but they're also part of a larger phenomenon to be understood. 11 killed in a Pittsburgh synagogue, 58 synagogue, rather, 58 killed in Las Vegas, 17 killed in a Florida school. These wanton massacres coming with numbing regularity are symptoms of a sick body politic. The newspapers are full of stories about white nationalism, the apparent motive of the El Paso shooter. This is indeed a dangerous ideology. We ran a careful analysis, referring to first things, of the perverse appeal of right-wing identity politics last year. Some uh, commentators focus on the widespread availability of high-powered guns in our society. This, too, is a clear danger, but neither explanation goes deep enough. Two generations ago, there were dangerous ideologies abroad um, and plenty of unstable young men. When millions returned from military service after 1945, guns were even more readily available then than they are now. Yet there was no epidemic of public massacres. There were vicious murders in the ensuing decades. Charles Manson comes to mind, along with serial killer Son of Sam, Black Panther's open carried rifles in Oakland. The Symbionese Liberation Army kidnapped Patty Hearst. Yet even in the late 1960s and early 70s, a troubled, sometimes violent time, we did not turn on our TV sets every few months to learn of yet another shooter in a school or shopping mall. The regular mass shootings put an exclamation mark on the social decomposition of the United States. The warning signs are everywhere. Anyone visiting Seattle or San Francisco is struck by the packs of feral youths living in the street. People shoot up in public. The smell of marijuana is now commonplace in most major cities. A friend who runs a large company in the Midwest told me that it's hard to find people to hire. Most who apply can't pass drug tests. The evidence is not just anecdotal. 
Out-of-wedlock births have risen over the last generation. More and more young people grow up in unstable family situations. As Charles Murray documents in Coming Apart, working-class Americans are increasingly um, atomized and dysfunctional. Given cultural collapse, it's not surprising that America now sees a declining life expectancy, a remarkable phenomenon in a rich, developed country. Among white working-class Americans, the decline is catastrophic, akin to the situation in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. A fish rots from the head down. The social disillusion of our nation is a direct consequence of the mentalities, politics, and actions of our ruling class. It is, a, it is condemning that tech moguls take extreme measures to insulate their own children from the devices and social media platforms they market so vigorously to the rest of us. It's condemning that our ruling class makes a fortune on violent video games, does nothing to limit pornography, and presses for drug legalization amid an epidemic of overdose deaths. Behind these obvious betrayals of the public good, powerful trends erode the foundation of a healthy social order. The therapeutic mentality of ho- is hostile to moral discipline. The agenda of inclusion almost always promotes soft relativism. Transgressive chic mocks old-fashioned standards. All of these and more are strongly favored by the people who have been running our media, our schools, and cultural institutions for the last two generations. I'm sure those same people will insist that the El Paso massacre indicates that we need still more therapeutic interventions, still more multicultural education, still more efforts to root out toxic masculinity. They will say that we have not gone far enough. Too many people, they will tell us, are sunk in traditional ways of thinking, beholden to religious fundamentals or otherwise impaired and unable to attain the properly progressive uh, outlook. Relatively suggestive otherwise, Say what you uh, want about W.A. Criswell, the famous preacher who was a fixture for decades at First Baptist Church in Dallas. But of uh, this we can be certain. His rigorous Christian message had nothing to do with the massacre in El Paso. On the contrary, any sober observer will recognize that the receding influence of men like Criswell are correlated to the rise of mass shootings. Social scientists will warn that correlation does not prove causation, but they also know that where there's smoke, there's fire. I pray for the souls of those killed last weekend, and I also pray that we will be delivered from the leadership class that has done so much to ruin our society over the last two generations. Their pseudo-progressive ideas about culture are bankrupt. They have promised freedom, but delivered a culture of death. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 21 minutes after 5 o'clock. Portions of our program today are brought to you by Zero Res. As promised, we want to give away our second four-pack of tickets to the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, featuring 26 new songs. Miss America 2002, Katie Harmon, Timothy Greenidge, 300 Voice Choir, Cinematic Nativity, and the Jefferson Dancers. We're giving away a family pack of tickets to see the Singing Christmas Tree on Friday, November 22nd at 7.30 p.m. So make note, Friday, November 22nd, 7.30 p.m. In fact, the Singing Christmas Tree begins on Friday, November 22nd, and will continue the 23rd, 24th, resume the 29th, 30th, and December 1st. It's two weekends, so don't miss it. And this is the last week to save $5 on advanced purchase tickets. So every ticket you purchase, $5 off, so make note of that. But for now, I have to admit I'm a little puzzled because as I'm looking into the engineer's booth, Clark is standing on the table. 
Are, are you ready for this, Clark? Okay. Um, we're going to give away our four-pack of tickets to caller number five and the number to call, 800-845-2162, 800-845-2162. Again, Portland's Christmas tradition is back for two weekends only starting November 22nd. We're giving tickets away for that performance, 7.30 p.m. at the Keller Auditorium, 800 800- the number to call and caller number five. Well, Michael Brown asked the question, is America too sick to recover? And he writes, to be sure, these tragic shootings are just the tiny tip of a massive iceberg of violence and murder. And violence and murder are themselves just tips of an even bigger iceberg of national sin, rebellion and dysfunction. But these shootings reveal the ugly underbelly of our society, and we cannot deny that we are very sick as a nation. The optimist, of course, will point to the many wonderful qualities of America, to the many sacrificial acts of Americans, to the many heroes in our midst, most of them unsung. And the optimists would be right. There are many wonderful Americans and many great things about our nation. But when a doctor tells you that you have cancer, the doctor doesn't also say, but your hearing and eyesight are good, so don't be discouraged. Instead, the doctor tells you how serious the diagnosis is and gives you the best plan to fight it. Today, we need that serious diagnosis. Today, we need to consult with a great physician. He is the only one who can heal our wounds. Does that mean that we close our eyes and ignore the social dynamics that may have contributed to these horrific acts of bloodshed? Well, certainly not. Let's have honest conversations about all the relevant or possibly relevant issues that may have contributed. Let's talk about mental health, about the breakdown of the family, about gun control, about the president's rhetoric, about the left-wing media's mischaracterization and exaggeration of some of his rhetoric, about the conditions of our inner cities, about racism, about immigration. Let's sort out the relevant from the irrelevant, the real from the imagined, and let's put it all on the table for evaluation. But at the end of the day, there are no special social band-aids that will heal the wounds of our grieving and the wounded or bridge our political divides. There are no political solutions that will cure the ills that lie at the root of our society. And while some will despise the call to prayer, in the end, there is nothing better we can do. One of my colleagues is the pastor of a large congregation that believes in praying for the sick. But he teaches his people that if any, if they encounter a medical emergency, they should call 911 and then pray. In other words, he doesn't, he doesn't want them to be irresponsible praying for the victim of a car crash for 10 minutes before calling 911. That 10 minutes might be the difference between life and death. But he also knows that plenty of times the best emergency services cannot save someone's life. For that dying person, divine intervention is their only hope. Either God heals them or they're gone. It's the same with America today. Either God heals us and brings us to repentance or we face national collapse. Let us then do everything we can on the ground to address the myriad problems we face, which means transcending partisan politics. At the same time, let's recognize that there is not a a political leader on the planet who can fix America. The very thought of it is absurd. Just trying to filling uh, in the blank with your favorite politician as in so-and-so will fix America, right? Well, neither political party can heal America's wounds, nor will the media make us healthy. We don't need a prophet to tell us that. The reality is that the only hope for a healthy America comes from above, from our creator, our redeemer, savior. America certainly needs saving. But America is a nation of more than 330 million people, and the thought of seeing national transformation and awakening is daunting. Can this massive ship really be turned? With man, it is impossible, totally and hopelessly impossible. But with God, it is uh, certainly it can be done. 
That's why we fall on our faces and we pray earnestly, fervently, consistently. But let's not just pray for God to have mercy on America. Let's pray that God will have mercy on the Church of America, on we who are uh, called to be salt and light. Let's turn to him in repentance for our many sins, for our indifference, for our carnality, for our divisions, for our sexual sins, for our financial scandals, for our hardness of heart. And then let's then sharpen our focus even more as we pray. Lord, have mercy on me. Start the awakening in my own life here and now. I repent for my guilt and sin. If we truly cry out day and night until the breakthrough comes, God will answer our prayers. The hour is late, but not too late. The question is, how will we respond? Again, there are many things that we should do, that we must do, but among them certainly is fervent prayer. Well, you might recall Senator Ted Cruz recently requested an organized crime investigation of the masked militant group Antifa, which he called a left-wing anarchist terrorist organization that routinely relies on violence to intimidate and punish its political opponents, while doing so in masks. He made his request for a probe of Antifa in a letter to Attorney General William Barr, Attorney Deputy Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, and FBI Director Christopher Wray. The letter details a path to prosecuting members of Antifa under the Racketeer Influenced and Corruption Organizations Act, or RICO, broadly targeting those uh, they claim are far-right and racist. Antifa members have repeatedly engaged in criminal activity, ranging from destroying property to attacking a reporter. The group is best known for fighting those it labels fascists with tactics borrowed from Adolf Hitler's early followers known as brown shirts. Antifa came to national attention in 2017 when its violent protests of President Trump at his inauguration led to hundreds of arrests. Antifa protesters in Washington destroyed storefronts that... Trash cans and a limousine on fire attacked police officers with rocks and bricks. In New York City, Dallas, Chicago, Portland, club-wielding Antifa protesters threw bricks and unknown liquids at police officers. The University of California, Berkeley, was Antifa's next headline-making stage, wearing their signature black garb and face masks. Members threw fireworks, rocks, and bricks at police to protest a speech on Berkeley's campus by political provocateur Milo uh, Yiannopoulos. They also set fire to buildings, smashed windows, and pepper sprayed a woman wearing a hat expressing support for President Trump. Broadly targeting those they claim are far-right and racist, Antifa members have repeatedly engaged in criminal activity ranging from destroying property to attacking reporters. Well, Antifa has been particularly active here in Portland. During a May Day event in 2017, a riot, the group set bonfires in the streets, destroyed storefronts, vandalized police cars, and recently attacks have become more violent. Antifa protesters here robbed and attacked journalist Andy No and others with fists, sticks, pepper spray, milkshakes that local police say may have been mixed with cement in June. The attacks sent several people to the hospital with serious injuries, in No's case, a brain hemorrhage. Police stood on the sidelines and did nothing. The violence escalated further in July after sending uh, his friend a manifesto declaring, I am Antifa. The 69-year-old man attacked an Immigration and Customs Enforcement Detention Center in Tacoma. Armed with a rifle and improvised incendiary devices, the man uh, set cars on fire, threw firebombs at the facility, attempted to ignite a large propane tank. Police confronted him and then shot and killed him. The Tacoma attack could have easily produced mass casualties and 
Seattle anti-fascist action seems okay with that, hailing the attack as another martyr in the struggle against fascism. The group added, may his death serve as a call to protest and direct action. Well, in response to Antifa's increasing violence, at least in Portland, local law enforcement's inability or unwillingness to protect a community, commentators, including um, senior legal fellow Hans von Spakovsky, have called for federal action. Spakovsky, he argues that Antifa members should be prosecuted under civil rights laws like Ku Klux Klan and the act, which makes it illegal for masked thugs to deprive others of their civil rights. Cruz has upped the ante by urging the Department of Justice to investigate Antifa members under RICO, a law enacted to combat organized crime. Originally, RICO was intended to take on the mafia. Today, it's used more broadly, sometimes too broadly, but Antifa has made itself a fair target. RICO makes it illegal for a person to participate in the affairs of an enterprise that engages in racketeering activities. Racketeering activities include crimes like arson, robbery, fraud, and money laundering. Cruz lays out the RICO case against Rose City Antifa, the group based here in Portland. For one, the group is an association of people or enterprise within the meaning of the statute. For another, it acts of, uh, its acts of arson and robbery are well-documented, extensive, and ongoing. What's more, he says, the group remains active and declares its intention to commit more and increasingly violent crimes in the future. RICO makes it illegal for a person to participate in the affairs of an enterprise that engages in racketeering activities. And these include crimes like, well, arson, robbery, fraud, and money laundering. What's more, the group remains active and declares its intention. Well, if the Justice Department takes Cruz's advice and opens an investigation, Portland would be a good place to start. But Antifa groups are perpetrating similar crimes all over the country in violation of state and federal laws. The Justice Department and Antifa's victims should use every tool at their disposal, including civil rights laws, to stop this modern-day brown shirt mob. But we'll see what actually happens as we continue to move forward. Coming up, we're going to hear from Stephen Kendrick, producer of the highly anticipated sixth film from Alex and Stephen Kendrick, Overcomer, and the suite of resources. And the movie will be in theaters on the 23rd of this month. Find out more at OvercomerMovie.com. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, if you haven't yet heard Overcomer, the highly anticipated sixth film of Alex and Stephen Kendrick, is coming to theaters. It's going to debut nationwide on the 23rd of this month. Now, the uh, the film Overcomer, it follows on the heels of the Kendricks Brothers 2015 hit War Room, which was the number one movie in theaters across North America in the second week of release. Well, the film is accompanied by a suite of products that are releasing uh, in uh, the fall of this year. And it includes a trade book by the New York Times bestselling author Alex and Stephen uh, Kendrick titled Defined and uh, Who God Says You Are and many, many others. Well, here to talk with us about the film and this suite of books is Stephen Kendrick. Kendrick, after serving uh, in church ministry for 20 years, he now writes, speaks, and produces Christian films with his brother Alex and Shannon. Uh, Stephen produced the movie Overcomer, War Room, Courageous, Fireproof, Facing the Giants, and Flywheel, and co-wrote the New York Times best-selling books, The Love Dare, The Resolution for Men, The Battle Plan for Prayer. He's been interviewed in just about everywhere you might imagine and serves on the boards of the Fatherhood Commission and the Christian Film Foundation. He and his wife Jill live in Albany, Georgia with their six children and they're active members of Sherwood Church, and we are just delighted to have you with us today to talk about Overcomer. Welcome. 
Thank you, Georgine. I've been looking forward to talking to you. Well, I've been looking forward to talking to you as well. In fact, I'm a little um, Twitter-pated because the, the two of you are just – I'm major fans, so <laughs> it's a real thrill oh, to have, you, wow. uh, have you with us. Well, let's talk about the new film that's coming out, I Can Hardly Wait. Overcomer is a family film, but it really points to identity. Tell us a little bit about the film. Well, it's our sixth film. If people liked Courageous or Fireproof or War Room, they're going to love Overcomer. It's the biggest budget, the most beautifully shot, and the story is quite the roller coaster. Uh, It is definitely uh, about identity in Christ, Mm -hmm. and you're following the least likely coach as he helps the least likely runner take on the biggest race of the year. And uh, we follow a basketball coach who loses his team, and he's forced to coach cross-country, which he doesn't even think is a real sport. And uh, the only person who goes out on his team is a girl that struggles with asthma. And so the coach is a believer, but he has his identity out of order. You know, God is not first in his life. You know, his position, his job is how he defines himself. The girl doesn't know the Lord. She's living with her grandmother. Uh, She grows up, you know, knowing her parents are dead. And uh, she doesn't she doesn't have any sense of her own identity. I think a lot of teenagers will be able to relate to her. Yeah. But throughout the film, you see both of them really discover what does it mean to have your identity in Christ. And knowing Jesus really transforms every area of our lives. You know, you managed once again to create a film that appeals to so many different people on so many different levels. There's a marriage theme. I think men will really connect with the coach character. Students will find in uh, the the main character, Hannah, a, a bit of themselves. What do you hope that the primary message is uh, through this film in helping to connect people, not only uh, relating to the characters, but recognizing their need ultimately uh, to find their identity in Christ? Well, for non-believers who don't know the Lord, they're going to hear the gospel crystal clear. Uh, Priscilla Shire is in this film. She does an amazing job playing the principal, Olivia Brooks, and she shares the gospel with Hannah in the film and does an, um, just does an incredible job. There is such a, a radiance to Priscilla as she is sharing about the love of Christ and uh, the Heavenly Father's love for us through Jesus. And so anyone who doesn't know the Lord Uh, Our hope would be that they would give their lives to Christ. But for believers, they're going to be challenged with, do you know uh, who you are in Christ? What are you allowing to define you? Because as they watch the film, I think they're going to be very entertained. There's a lot of humor in the movie, Mm -hmm. and there's a roller coaster of emotions. And the last 20 minutes is quite the ride of an inspirational state championship run with some twists and turns that take place. It's funny because in theaters, people are standing up and cheering on this girl as if it's their own daughter at the end of this race. And so, um, but at the end of the film, when you walk out of the theater, we think you will have, you'll just feel deeply loved by your Heavenly Father. Uh, And you'll be challenged to want to dive into Ephesians 1 and 2 and discover more of who you are in Christ and what does it mean to be found in him. Mm. Now, again, the the movie opens in theaters nationwide on August 23rd. So make note of that in your, your diary. How do you guys do it? Because you have written and produced such inspirational films that aren't cheesy. They're relatable. You have the, just the right amount of humor and depth. How do you do it? And how did this particular movie come to, to mind uh, to, to uh, shape the message of one's identity in Christ? 
I would say we got two praying parents and we've got a whole, we got a praying church and we have learned like in the movie war room that you fight your battles in prayer first. And we will pray for months leading up to making the decision about a direction. Uh, we're praying as we're auditioning, we're praying every day on set. We'll pray over the set, dedicate the, the day to the Lord and try to honor him. So I can say that we feel like the boy with five loaves and two fish. You know, we have so little to offer, but we're serving a powerful Savior who can do amazing things beyond our own ability. So one of the things we pray is Ephesians 3.20. Lord, would you do exceedingly abundantly Hmm. above all we could ask or imagine according to the power of your Holy Spirit at work within us, to your glory and to your praise? And so Anytime people watch our films and they see anything that they feel is, you know, cheesy or doesn't work, we'll have to take credit for that. (laughs) But anything that is really touching their hearts, anything that's changing their lives, is saving a marriage, bringing healing, we know that has to be the Holy Spirit at work uh, through the tool of the films. And so uh, with this film, it was uh, the Lord speaking to Alex while he was coaching his kids uh, in cross country. And at the same time, he was speaking to me after my wife and I adopted a baby girl from China, and we saw her identity completely change from an unwanted burden in a communist country to a a beloved blessing in a Christian home in America. And it it really turned on the light bulb for me to help me understand how Ephesians 1 and 2 is really the same story, but it's not – uh, in Kendrick, it's in Christ and what happens to every person who places their faith in Jesus. Amen. Can you tell us about the books that will uh, release in a connection with the film? Sure. It's important to us that when people walk out of the theater, that they're not just moved emotionally, but that their lives are transformed by the Word of God and that they, they're renewed uh, in their thinking by God's Word. So we try to have follow-up resources with every movie that is age integrated. And so there's a book for every age group uh, that talks about identity in Christ that any individual can read. Uh, And then there are Bible study, small group curriculums for every age group uh, that are connected to identity in Christ as well. So if you go to overcomermovie.com, you can see the trailers for the film and the the theaters where it's going to be shown around you. But there's also a button for resources, so you can see uh, what would fit your context. You know, um, whether you're leading an adult Bible study group or leading a children's ministry, there's something on there for everyone, so that so that all ages can study Ephesians and study identity in Christ at the same time. Mm. Well, I'm so excited. I have a particular young girl who's going to be a freshman this year that I'm planning on bringing to the movie, and I'm so grateful for the resource to follow up on that very theme. So once again, just appreciate the work that you do. I want to remind our listeners that the movie Overcomer opens in theaters on August the 23rd, and you can go to the website for more information as to which theater is closest to you, times and uh, all of that. Um, it's Again, it's such a thrill to talk with you, Stephen. I appreciate the work that you and your family are doing and uh, look forward to your latest offering, Overcomer, the movie. Thank you so much, Georgine. What a blessing to talk to you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.
Again, Stephen is uh, one of the pair, Stephen and Alex uh, Kendrick, and they also have a brother, Shannon, who works with them on these films as well. The books that accompany this film are Revealed. There's Radiant. Priscilla Shire wrote that one. There's Wonderful, The Truth About Who I Am. That's a kid's version written by the brothers. And then Defined, the adult version, Who God Says You Are. All of these resources will be available at the theaters uh, when you see them. Again, Overcomer the movie. Check it out. You can watch the trailer, find out the details of locations and so on. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, David Jeremiah, as you may know, is coming to the Portland area on October 15th. He's going to be our keynote speaker for the Pastor Appreciation Breakfast. And I noted uh, that he has uh, made some comments about the nature of the church that I thought bore repeating. He's warning that the modern church is entertainment driven. It's a social organization and afraid of controversy, afraid of uh, meeting head on some of the challenges that the church is designed to uh, to provide leadership in. He writes that many U.S. churches today have forgotten their purpose, becoming entertainment-driven social organizations, eager to blend in with secular culture, instead of focusing on biblical discipleship. He went on to say the church is coming under attack. It's forgotten what the church is supposed to be. He, of course, is the founder of Turning Point Radio and Television Ministries, and he was speaking to the Christian Post. He went on to say, we're not an entertainment service. We're not here to see how close we can get to what the world does. But there's so much of the world that the church in the church, rather, and vice versa, that we can't tell a difference. We have to hold to the truth. We have to get nourished. If it's not happening, you're a social organization and not a church. Well, David Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah, who also serves as senior pastor of Shadow Mountain Community Church in El Cajon, California, explained that amid a nationwide decline in church attendance, far too many churches have become obsessed with remaining relevant. Um, there's an incredible motivation, he went on to say, on the part of everyone to be successful. And a lot of times people program their churches to see how many people will sit in the pews on Sunday. There's nothing wrong with getting people there as long as you share the gospel. But there's no glory in just a number. Don't worship at an attendance altar. A lot of good things happen in churches when there's there aren't huge numbers, but the pastors are prepared uh, or have prepared a good message and there's worship. We get off on this thing that... Uh, we have to be bigger than the guy down the street and how we get more people in the building. When you're focused on that, you'll never preach anything that's controversial. You'll always be trying to figure out how to get more people to come. Well, the New York Times bestselling author pointed out that, ironically, churches that focus on entertainment and fail to present the whole gospel are actually driving millennials and Generation X away, or rather Generation Z. He cited research from Barna Group and the Cornerstone Knowledge Network, which found that 67 percent of millennials prefer a classic church over a trendy church. Here in California, he says, we see interest on the part of millennials and younger for uh, the the Bible and for truth. Most of the time we see statistics about how people are leaving the church. But in many respects, young people are demanding more truth, more teaching and less entertainment. They're not interested in shallow expressions of religion. He told the Christian Post that many Christians feel uncertain when it comes to living each day as a follower of Christ, even though God equips all believers with everything they need to walk confidently as members of his kingdom. 
This, he says, is often a failure on the part of church leadership. Christians have two major markers in their lives when they become Christians and when they go to heaven. But most Christians don't know what to do in between those two markers, and that's because churches don't teach them. The whole idea that God expects us to build character in our lives is a foreign thing to so many people because it hasn't been taught and explained from a pulpit. The pastor is gearing up for the release of his latest book, Everything You Need, Seven Essential Steps to a Life of Confidence in the Promises of God. In it, he unpacked Second Peter 1, outlining the seven essential steps to live a life of confidence in the promises of God. Second Peter 1 says, and I'm quoting uh, David Jeremiah, God has given us everything we need for a godly life, not some things, everything. I see people running around trying to find the things they supposedly need as believers, and here is God telling us, I've already given you everything you need. In Romans, God outlines the character qualities he wants his people to grow and develop. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. What I've tried to do is take each of these characteristics and not only explain them, but give practical ways readers can use them. I encourage readers to take these precious promises from God and memorize them, keeping them in your spiritual hard drive. Then verbalize them. When you share those truths with others, it helps them and emboldens us, uh, emboldens us um, deepening our commitment to the scriptures. Get a journal, and when you find scripture that speaks to you, write them down and build your spiritual inventory so that when you face issues, you're equipped with the promises of God. He went on to say, he warned that Christians shouldn't be ignorant of Satan's strategies, and one of the greatest lies is that it's fine to just float through life. Paul writes in Philippians that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but in talking to many Christians, it's not something they seem to comprehend. The pastor said, on the other hand, Satan tells us that it's all well and good uh, to work on our salvation, but when we um, don't do it well or mess up, he swoops in and says, see, I told you I, uh, it can't be done. But when you mess up, you don't give up, you keep growing. Well, in an era of uncertainty, David Jeremiah said he hopes that his book encourages readers to live a life of confidence in the promise of God and take ownership of their salvation. Finally saying, I've been through two rounds of cancer, and one thing I've learned through that is that God truly is all he promises to be. And whenever I go, one of the things we talk about is how we're all living under uh, pressures today, that those can be mitigated when we tap into the power God gives us, downloaded into our lives through his word. We need to be memorizing them and practicing them. When we do that, we get the benefit of the promise of God that he so clearly lays out for us in his word. Again, David Jeremiah is going to be the speaker at the upcoming Pastors Appreciation Breakfast that's coming up on Tuesday, October 15th at the Oregon Golf Club in West Lynn. It's a free event, and we're just uh, inviting pastors and associates and their spouses to come and find encouragement uh, as we uh, express our appreciation and high regard for those who serve in the body of Christ. So make note of that, and if your pastor hasn't already uh, indicated he's going, make sure he knows about it and encourage him to join us. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Chris Bruno. The book is titled Paul versus James, uh, Calvinist versus Arminius. I suppose you might also say what we've been missing in the faith and works debate. Uh, Chris Bruno will talk with us about that, Paul versus James. And then on Thursday, Stephen Kello, uh, the Ph.D., will join us to walk with Jesus on campus, how to care for your soul during college. Now, during the kind of academic rigor that is expected during college and university years, many uh, young people just simply 
jettison church attendance at all. They need to study. They don't have time. They need uh, uh, time to rest in between uh, the challenge of uh, their higher education. But Stephen Kello offers in his book, Walk with Jesus on Campus, a perspective on how to nurture your soul while at the same time uh, doing well on a college campus. And then on Friday, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. So I hope you'll join us for that. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering. And I'd like to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Once again, tomorrow, Paul versus James, what we've been missing in the faith and works debate. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.